You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. Thanks everyone for joining in. You know, scouting plays a huge role in both of our deer hunting styles. For me, I heavily rely on a combination of aerial scouting and postseason scouting to learn new areas, find bedding areas, and even pick out potential trees. Boswell is a fairly different philosophy, which leans much more heavily towards in-season scouting. Through our discussion, we'll talk about the benefits of in-season scouting, but just as importantly, what to look for and what tools to utilize. Also, we've gotten a few questions as to why we're showing up on the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast feed, and for that matter, why Land and Legacy podcast, and very soon the Transition Wild podcast, all show up under the same feed. Well, here's why. Around November 1st, the name of the podcast feed will actually change from Nine Finger Chronicles to Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network. This has been the plan all along ever since we teamed up with Dan. So for you, the listener, there's no action required. If you're already subscribed to the DIY Sportsman podcast, You'll simply notice a name change on the feed to Sportsman's Nation, so don't be alarmed. We're looking forward to continue providing great content as part of the network. Without further ado, let's jump right into the podcast and talk in-season scouting. All right, so let's talk about if we if we acquire a new piece of property, whether it's public or private ground, in-season, say today's October 14th that we're recording this, say that you got a new piece of property um, that you're going to decide to hunt. You know, What are some of the first things you're going to do? Well, the very first thing I'll do is start online. Even if I already know, like if it's public land, I've probably already looked at the map. If I get private permission through going door to door, I will have already looked previously at, you know, aerial photos to see if it's worth asking. And if it's a place where I just get permission through word of mouth, the first thing I'll do is go look online, see the property boundaries and start looking at the aerial photos. Depending on whether it's a marsh place or it's a hill country place, That'll kind of determine if I focus more on the topo maps or the aerial photos, but they can both be important depending on where exactly you are. Yeah, I, I completely agree, especially, you know, I haven't hunted a whole lot of marshland, so I can see where an aerial photo from marshland would be a lot more important than a topo map. But to me, you know, both of those put together, you know, I start with the topo map, you know, and obviously highlight the areas of just stand out on a map on me of, you know, funnels and benches and things like that. And then look at that overlaid on a, a aerial photo map. So then you can kind of look at where the timber may pinch down to make a, a funnel that way. So I'm with you on that. I think looking at, looking at both of those together at the same time. And even, I think this is where things like the Onyx maps where you can be in the field and look at that on your phone, um, it really helps you scouting. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. And you bring up a good point with that onyx because now a lot of the things that i used to do on my own you know just looking up the information through the state website or the county website or what have you now you can just get that at your fingertips comes at a cost but it's it's a lot more convenient saves hours of time it makes it a little harder now honestly um you know used to you could either go down and get a plot book or things like that and it made it a lot of people didn't want to go through that much trouble to find out who owned property 
and look through things like that. And now that it's such an easy resource that everybody has done it now. So it's kind of made it a little bit more difficult to find land even to hunt on. Yeah. I think that's definitely the case too, especially around some of the larger cities. Oh yeah, absolutely. The urban hunting, um, especially has really boomed and having that resource has made it really interesting. So say that you do, you know, you're now you're in season, obviously it's October 14th again, but what's, what are you looking for when you start looking at that map or do you just want to get boots on the ground after you look at the map? No, I definitely want to almost plan out hunts in my entirety and I want to pinpoint just a handful of top priority locations before I actually step foot on the place, just because then I can really make my time more efficient once I actually do drive out there, depending on whether it's, you know, close by or I have to drive an hour and a half to get there. What I'm looking for basically this time of year, as it's getting closer and closer to the rut, I'm looking for the funnels. I'm looking for potential bedding areas where there might be doe bedding during the rut. And I'm looking for transition lines. And if it's a marsh, I'm also looking for trails. Because a lot of the times if you have a cattail marsh, which we have a few of here in the Twin Cities, depending on what the source of that aerial photo is, you can actually see trails going through cattails or going through marsh grass, and that makes things a lot easier. Sometimes you can even tell if it's a trail that is used by deer or if it's a trail that's basically used by a hunter to access a certain place. A lot of times the hunter trails will show up a lot wider than a deer trail would, and oftentimes the deer trails will kind of be like a couple trails that are, you know, right next to each other within like a few feet, whereas a hunter trail will usually just be one trail that the guy will just take every time and kind of pound wider and wider every time, he, every time he walks through the marsh. If it's a piece of hill country, then the aerial photo doesn't help quite as much. I can still see some of the transition lines. If I'm, you know, say like there's some evergreens versus some uh, open timber, that can be definitely an important place to look. But a lot of times for hill country, I'm looking for more like benches, saddles, points, uh, basically locations where a deer might run the ridge or he might cross from one area to another. Yeah, see, this is this is where I really differ for you. Um, you know, I look at the topo map and the aerial photo and, you know, kind of highlight those areas that I want to look at. And then I want to get boots on the ground, whether I go in there, you know, on a rainy day, um, something like that. And I want to check all those areas and I want to look at them to see before I go in there to hunt, you know, which ones might be better. And like one thing you mentioned, that's it's something that I think a lot of people overlook is using that aerial photo to distinguish the difference in timber from, you know, like a pine stand to a hardwood stand or even just a, a different in the the photo where you can see like a line in the timber, something that might be a change from, say, oaks to hickories even. You can use that and there's a kind of an edge effect there. And, you know, deer are obviously kind of a, a pretty edge-oriented species for the most part if they can be. Um, so I use all that and so I go out there with this map that's basically highlighted and I want to go to all these areas and I want to ground truth them and I want to look at them. And then I kind of develop my hunting plan from that. Okay. So you basically just start, you use that mapping as just kind of a first glance. Okay. Now I got an idea. The real magic happens once I actually get on on the ground and see what's there. Yeah. Because, you know, one of the areas that you may, maybe like your second or third area down the list by looking at a topo map or an aerial photo map, you may get in there and it may have, you know, persimmons dropping, for example, on a bench that may have been like your third or fourth spot you wanted to hunt, but because of that crop or that mast being there, um, you know, it really bumps that area up. So I think getting in and ground truthing all of those areas that you've kind of highlighted or found as points of interest on the map, you know, really leads to um, getting in there and finding them 
because there's could be variables that's on the ground, whether that could be fallen timber, even, you know, a hurricane or tornado could have come through there three years before in a good saddle, but laid over a lot of trees and you cannot be able to use it as a transition point. So I think kind of my standpoint from why I try to get exact locations as much as possible, just from looking at the maps is if I can pick a location that looks really good on a map and maybe I can even pick out the tree that I want to sit in. Maybe there's like a single pine tree that's kind of surrounded by, you know, a bunch of like oaks or maples or what have you. And it's going to be a place where I can plan out a route and get right to that tree. And I'll probably, you know, start with like an afternoon set. If I follow a strategy like that, I can walk in during daylight with a stand on my back. And if it looks good, I can set up and sit there. And my scent is basically not intruding in that area too much versus you know if that place ends up looking bad if there's you know trees down there's no deer sign or there's you know scent wicks everywhere then i can just kind of continue on to that next spot that looked good and just kind of scout with the stand on my back and make it the game time decision versus a separate scouting trip so to speak so being being an in-season scouting slash hunting trip what are you looking for sign wise when you get to that area to determine whether you want to hunt in it are you looking for scrapes, rubs, um, trails, you know, scat? What are you What are you looking for that really keys you into that spot as being good once you get on that ground? Sometimes the sign won't be as important to me if I know that it's a terrain feature that the deer are going to go through regardless. So, for example, I might find an island in a cattail marsh. And looking at the aerial photos from years past, you can see trails going from one location to another. And it looks like there could be bedding there. Even if I go in there and I don't see that there's a lot of fresh sign, I might know that historically the deer are probably going to use it eventually. And there might be a spot where even if I don't hunt it that day, I might come back, you know, in a week's time and it might have heated up or I might get some deer movement through there. Same thing with hill country. There might be a spot that just looks kind of dead. Maybe there's a single trail, but no fresh sign, no droppings, anything like that. I might still be able to hunt that during the rut, just knowing the deer are going to use it, even if they haven't used it already. But if it's kind of earlier yet, not quite in the rut, then it's definitely going to be more for like looking for fresh tracks, fresh trails, which kind of be hard for me. I'm not, I'm not all that great. I don't feel like at finding sign that's fresh versus sign that's a few days old, especially if it's rained recently and kind of makes everything look artificially fresh. Yeah. I think that's a real interesting topic. Um, to me, most of most of the best scouters that I've ever seen have all been, you know, fur trappers, you know, trapping coyotes, foxes, and stuff like that, because they have that real keen ability to look at sign and know whether it's old sign or sign to trap on. Um, so, you know, I think that transitions really well into, you know, scouting for deer and be able to see that sign. And I'm a lot like you, you know, I, I like to hunt more of where the deer are moving through than hunting, you know, field edges or places where I can see deer or food plots even. So like you said, getting in, finding scrapes and rubs, you know, obviously tells me there's deer in the area, but then trying to determine from those, you know, which trails best to be on through the saddle or across the bench, things like that. So I think it's really, really good to key in on those areas. And then once you kind of find them, you know, look for sign in there. Right. Yeah. There'll definitely be occasions where I might not have a specific spot picked out, but I have a particular area that's picked out. Maybe it's the size of like five acres some area where I, I know that someplace in there is going to be good, but I just don't know exactly where I might walk in there with a stand on my back. And as soon as I see some amount of fresh sign, what looks like fresh sign, I'll just 
setup right there uh, versus trying to see if there's a better spot and then coming back to that one if there isn't. Yeah, even this time of year, you know, oaks are still dropping acorns. You know, sometimes I've been going gone into an area and basically still hunted until I found an oak tree that's dropping acorns and then set up right by that oak tree, you know, so just moving quietly and listening, listening for those acorns to hit the ground. And then, you know, that tree's dropping acorns and, you know, you're taking a gamble to assume those deer are going to come to that particular tree. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but obviously acorns fall is going to bring deer. So when you go into a spot for the first time and you're just looking to, you know, scout it, it's your first mission. You've kind of looked at the map briefly. You kind of know what's in the area, you know, some potentially good spots to look for. Do you go in with a, you know, with your saddle set up, with your bow, ready to hunt, or do you just take a specific scouting trip first to try and get a really good lay of the, lay of the land? I'll always take a scouting trip first. Um, like I said, whether it's going in at, you know, eleven thirty or twelve o'clock in the afternoon and basically hoofing it through there, so making a quick, trying to hit all those points on the map that I want to get to, and taking notes, whether it's in my phone or mental, you know, that this spot had a white oak tree, you know, this spot had, you know, four red oaks, oh, the edge of this field, you know, the inside corner of this field had a persimmon tree, things like that, but typically always the first time in, I go in to scout and make it through as quick as I can, and, you know, I'm not necessarily concerned about noise at that point, I'm just going through there to go through there and check out all the spots. Do you try and plan that so that maybe you have a day where it's going to rain that night or something, or do you just, you know, regardless, you're going out into the woods to get that information? If I can, I'll try to plan it around a day where it's raining, um, whether it's a hard rain or a light rain. But if there's not a, you know, not rain in the forecast for the next week, then I'll typically go in there and I'll try to go in, you know, early to mid morning. So like nine to 11 o'clock is when I try to get in there and, and go through that area. A lot of that's because, you know, people are going to worry about busting deer up and stuff like that. Deer get busted up all the time by coyotes and things like that. You know, I don't think that deer is necessarily going to associate me with danger, especially if I'm just going through that area. I'm not, you know, inflicting in injury onto him. I'm just cruising through that area right through, you know, I may jump it up, but that's part of it. Well, I know that one thing for sure is that if you go in there without a bow, then you're a lot more likely to actually get all the information that you needed to versus saying this spot looks pretty good i don't know if i'm going to find something better than this and just setting up right there i know that i've gone in blind and wished i would have just scouted it previously because i would have maybe saved myself potentially two or three bad going in blind sits and that's kind of what i try to really prevent is those you know getting into an area and it be a mediocre area but an area that i had on the map that may have been you know two or three down the list of where i really wanted to hit be the hottest area in there and I miss those those crucial days to hunt that area because I was hung up on you know what looked like on a map a great area to hunt with mediocre sign so I want to be sure to hit all of those places as quickly as possible to determine which of those based off the sign that's there and you know the terrain and the habitat that it's in to determine which one of those is the best place so that's why I go in you know for a lot of private land um, you know the whole deer getting uh, bumped because of, you know, the human pressure and the human scent turning nocturnal, you know, I, my philosophy is deer are just dumb. Um, you know, public land, a lot of pressure that, that can be different because they do have, you know, kind of human scent pegged with danger compared to a lot more, you know, private land that has less activity on it. If I bump a deer, um, to me, that deer has no idea you know, that I'm danger at that point. He, I, he was bumped from it. He gets bumped by coyotes. He gets bumped by cows, squirrels even. So he, had, you know, he's none the wiser to me. You just reminded me of a particular strategy 
uh, called bump and dump. You essentially go in purposefully to try and bump a deer from a, a bed. And once you find that bed, once you've actually jumped the deer, you go right in there, find out exactly where he was sitting, find out exactly what he can see, find out what route he's going to take the next time he gets back to that bed. It's like you would set up the tree stand that at that very time and you sit there the first thing the next morning. The idea again is that if you bump that deer, he doesn't necessarily associate that as your danger. He can't bed there anymore. He might just say, okay, I have to get out of here now. I'll come back in first thing the next morning, just cause that's where he likes to bed. He feels safe there. And you're already there waiting for him that very next morning. Yeah. That's kind of my philosophy. You know, you think about it, people talk about bumping deer and deer leaving the area. You know, think about it from your perspective. If somebody was out to harm you or your family, you're not just going to up and run to Kansas where you know nobody. You're going to basically go to your living room where you know where if anything is out of place or anywhere. So you're basically going to core down into that area. And that's kind of the same philosophy for me with deer if you bump them. A deer's not going to leave the area. He may tighten his core area a little bit, but now by bumping him, I know more of where he's at. Right. And if you do that when there's snow on the ground... Then you can find out where he goes after he gets pushed from his most secluded, comfortable location. And then you know in future years that if you do screw it up in location A, you know where location B is going to be. Yeah, especially you know their escape routes. And escape routes can be a really big thing, you know, scouting to find out, especially if you're hunting public land where there gets a lot more pressure. If you can find an area where every deer that you've bumped or you've jumped, you know, has went to, you know that escape route. Um, you know, and I kind of learned this a lot more when I was back in Virginia with guys who did basically deer drives, you know, by knowing if you bump a deer here, that deer is going to run through this valley. You know, they can put a guy in that valley to basically shoot the deer when it runs by. Um, so that's just knowing the escape route of the deer, you know, you're using the same premise, but you're just doing it at a less accelerated rate of the deer running. So, you know, the deer gets bumped by somebody, it may trot through or walk briskly through that area, but you're hunting that escape route. Yeah, I've been able to capitalize on escape routes pretty much exclusively for when I go firearms hunting. I'll know the area, I'll know where the hunters that tend to just come in for firearm season will hunt, and I know exactly where those deer are going to be pushed to, and I'll just be there, you know, a couple hours before light, set up the tree stand, and then once the guys start walking in with their flashlights, moving deer around, by the time those deer get kicked around and start settling down again, they're back at my location. Yeah, and that's something that, you know, when you bump a deer, you kind of need to stop. Most people get, you know, like, oh, crap, I bumped a deer. Me, I'm looking to see exactly where that deer went and then why did it go that way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if it happens the next time, then I know, okay, that's the escape route of this deer. So that, you know, deer in this area tend to escape through this area specifically, whether it's a, you know, a narrow patch of pines or something like that. So by taking notes from those deer that you bump, you can actually learn more from them. So, especially as we're getting closer to the rut here, if you're doing in-season scouting for a place that you've never been to before, how would your strategy differ knowing that you're going to be hunting the rut versus just going in and scouting for, say, an early season hunt? Um, so, for the when the rut, I'm just looking more for a transition point, you know, a spot where deer funnel through, big deer, little deer, um, it doesn't matter what kind of deer it is, any place where deer move through. Um, is where I'm going to focus on. Compared to early season, I may be mo looking more towards mast. So whether that's acorns, whether that's, uh, you know, persimmons, you know, near field edges, if I've been seeing deer out in the field at night. Typically, anytime after the 15th or 18th of 
October, I won't hunt anywhere probably within 250 yards of fields. I'm hunting in timber, um, you know, specifically where deer are going to be moving through, where a buck in that area can easily check as many deer as possible for a scent trail. Okay. And what about if you have already scouted the place or hunted there in years past, what kind of preseason or in, or I should rephrase, what kind of in-season scouting would you do on a place that you're familiar with? Or would you not do any in-season scouting and just go out and hunt? I'm one of the oddballs. 98% of my scouting is all done in-season. Um, I don't do a lot of preseason scouting and I don't do a lot of postseason scouting. All my scouting is done during that particular season because to a degree – the deer can change their movements a little bit. Yeah, there's a lot of people out there who's going to have one particular tree that they've always had good luck in, and those are those really good spots. Um, but, you know, I've had a particular case, you know, I chased a buck for two years on the same piece of property, um, and he, his actual area where he was pretty much his core area where he would come out of his bedding changed by probably a quarter mile between one year to the next. Um, and it just took a lot of scouting in season to finally get on that buck and actually get him killed. Okay, so you were actually able to find that deer in season and get him on the ground. So did you bump that deer at all? Or how did you, I guess, find where that deer's new location was and still be able to kill him without actually spooking him out yeah. of the area or bumping him or what have you? In season scouting, I bumped him, bumped him up out of his bed up on a ridge. Um, so that told me, okay, he kind of moved where he bedded uh, to a, basically the opposite side of the ridge that year for some reason. So I just started hunting in that area, depending on the wind, when I could get into what ridge until I could finally see him actually coming out of his bed, you know, and moving down what ridge that he was coming down on. Um, and then I was, you know, waited for the good wind to get in there on that particular ridge and hunt him on that ridge. And that's where I killed him. So would you try and almost glass him, observe what he was doing before you actually made a move for the kill? Yeah. So basically, you know, once I kind of knew he was on where he was bedding, I just had to figure out, okay, where was he coming out at? So I would wait till I had a wind and I would set up on one ridge and it was merely an observation stand. You know, I would set up, be able to see 80 to 150 yards to the timber. Um, you know, if I didn't see him there, you know, the next time I would try to move to a different ridge until I could finally figure out where he was coming out and onto what ridge. I think there's something that you do a lot better than I do is really take pride in in-season scouting versus in-season hunting. I remember back when I first started getting into deer hunting a little bit more hardcore, um, I used to read articles about scouting, you know, postseason scouting and season scouting. And I remember one particular article where, uh, it was actually a Dan Infald article where he had put in 300 hours of scouting for a one hour hunt essentially. And he was doing a lot of observation, just watching what a particular buck would do before he actually had the perfect conditions that he could move in for a kill. And I think a lot of the times the trap that I know I fall into, and I think a lot of other people fall into as well, is that once the season is open, you feel like you have to capitalize on every moment that you have that you're able to get out into the woods. And so I think at times it becomes easy to, you know, say, I'm going to bring the bow out and I'm going to hunt in a particular spot. Even if you don't really have a great idea of what's going on in the woods right now, something might've changed. You might not necessarily know you might be better off doing just a scouting trip, leaving the bow at home and gathering Intel, which will make your next sit more productive. But the, you know, the temptation is always to just, if you have a free night, get out there in the woods and hunt. And I think a lot of that has come down to, you know, this, this big scent control debate that's in the hunting world now, um, you know, how the scent can affect deer. Um, and I know we're going to get into that later in a, in a different podcast on kind of scent control. 
Um, but I think a lot of people are so scared to get in there, worried that a deer is going to smell them and associate them with danger when, you know, as to me, as long as that deer does not see another deer die or you don't shoot at that deer and miss and absolutely scare the heck out of that deer, that deer is not going to associate you with danger. Um, so to me, getting in there and scouting during season does not hurt my chances of taking a deer, a big deer at all. Um, because as long as that deer doesn't associate me with danger, now if I shoot at that deer and miss um, or wound that deer or something like that, that completely changes the game to me uh, because now that deer associated, if he smelled me, which I'm sure he did because he's in the woods, he can smell me, um, with danger. So to me, that's really what holds a lot of people back from doing in-season scouting. What about if it's an area where you know it gets a lot of hunting pressure and you don't necessarily know if other people other people have spooked or shot at that deer that year? Yeah, public land really changes that game because, you know, most people with public land don't do a lot of scent control, um, really don't hunt the wind very well and things like that. And to me, I throw it all out the window. You know, I just, if it's bad wind, I'll hunt it anyways if I think it's a good spot. Um, Because if that deer is associated with it, he's going to get away for a while um, because that deer is going to be wise to it. So no matter how many tricks I try to throw at him, he's going to be wise enough to figure it out. Yeah, that's, that's definitely interesting perspective. Personally, I always just kind of fall into that same category too, where I'll be very conscious about spooking the deer. And I try to make most of my sits virgin sits where it's the first time I've gone into that spot for at least a few weeks. So that by the time a deer gets actually in front of my tree and realizes something's wrong, it's the first time he's noticed that somebody has been in the area, maybe his core area. And after that, you know, after that hunt has gone by, if I hadn't seen a deer, I figure, well, I have my scent in that area right now. So if he does come back out there, he's got my scent in that area. He's not going to come out until after dark potentially. And so I might as well just move on to a different spot, hunt a different deer maybe before moving back to that, that same spot when the time was right. I, I tend to be very cautious about that type of thing. Um, but it's kind of interesting to see how different people are able to have success using, utilizing different philosophies. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I wanted to ask you was noise. How big is noise to you when you're, whether you're doing in-season scouting or you're doing these hunts, you know, going in blind, do you take noise into effect? You know, are you always just trying to be quiet? Um, you know, I know some people do like the little squirrel walk and all these other things, you know, going into these areas just to try to mimic, you know, nature around them to be as quiet as possible getting into these areas. Well, it depends on if it's a rut sit or if it's a non-rut sit. If it's a non-rut sit, I'm generally trying to get as close to the bedding area as possible, and I will take noise to the absolute extreme. I'll have all my stuff, you know, stealth stripped. I know that my equipment's not going to make any noise. It's just up to me. Like last night when I went out, I got out a little bit later than normal, and I knew that there's a potential that the deer could be getting on their feet relatively soon after I got set up. So, yeah, I did the, the deer walk through the tall grass once I was starting to make noise just to try and sound a little bit more natural, taking a lot of breaks. And it probably took me, you know, 20 extra minutes to walk that extra hundred yards. But then by the time I got to that spot, I was pretty confident that I didn't screw anything up. Whereas if it's a rut set, then the deer that I might kill that day could be a mile away by the time I'm getting set up. So I don't really care that much about noise. I might just, you know, climb up the tree in, in five minutes, clanking stuff together. It doesn't make that big of a deal to me. If I do make noise on a bed hunt, then I kind of feel like I ruined that hunt for the day. But if I'm setting up for a rut hunt, I, yeah, I just really don't pay that much attention to it. 
Yeah, I tend to hunt more transition points than bedding areas or right up next to bedding areas. I try to hunt those transition points, you know, 100 yards away or 150 yards away, you know, leading to the bedding area or leading from where one place to another, basically. So for noise to me, you know, a lot of people go way overboard in my mind um, to muffle noise. Like for you, for example, you stealth stripped everything. Um, yeah, to me, that's, that's a, in my opinion, a waste of time. I don't, I don't deal with that. Um, you know, to me, any deer that's going to hear me is going to be within 60 yards, 70 yards of me setting up. Um, and by the time I'm set up and done, that deer's probably moved out of the way. And, you know, another deer that's a hundred yards, 150 yards away walking towards me had no idea that I was even there. That's the difference. I think is that on some of those bed hunts, I, I feel like I might be within earshot of some of the deer that I expect to see. So if they do hear any kind of unnatural noise and that kind of a setup, then that might make the difference between them getting up and moving in the last 15 minutes of daylight and waiting until 45 minutes after dark. Yeah, and again, a lot of that relates to public versus private. Um, you know, public ground, they may have associated that with danger, with you know somebody walking in with the climbing stand on their back, basically hitting every limb on the way in. Whereas to me, like in my mind, you know, private land, that could easily have been the farmer working on the fence behind them that you know does that every other week basically so they're used to hearing noise like that and they can just write it off as it's nothing right i actually hunted on a private farm in wisconsin a few years ago back when i was in college and when i pulled up to the place they were actually harvesting the corn with their, all their big machinery and i'm like oh geez because it only had about five acres of woods that was actually huntable and i'm thinking there's no way that i'm going to see deer they're probably out 10 miles away in the next farm or, you know, whatever. And I decided to go out there anyway. And I hadn't gotten 15 yards into the actual woodlot. And there was two does just standing there looking at me. Like they just didn't care. It was just normal noise to them. Yeah. I mean, I've got a similar, a similar story. When I was in college, I hunted a small little 35 acre piece of woods um, that I got permission from the owner from and going in there, I didn't know it. Uh, the neighbor um, on the East side of me had owned a gunsmithing shop. So he did a lot of test shooting of guns in his backyard. You know, the first time I was sitting up there in the tree stand about 80 yards from the property line and he just started shooting, I was like, oh, my hunt's over. I literally got about eight steps down the tree because um, I decided I was going to pack up and head home. And literally there's a little eight point standing there at 30 yards looking at me like, what is this idiot doing? And, you know, those deer didn't care anything about the gunshots because he'd been doing it for 20 years. So they'd heard, you know, every deer that had been around there had heard gunshots and just got accustomed to it. Yeah, so definitely noise is very location-specific, and it's very, um, I guess, memory-specific to the deer, what they've learned to associate throughout their lives as being noise that is non-threat versus noise that is potentially a threat. Yeah, there's a, a funny story. I don't know if for some reason it just popped in my head, but I was at a conference not long ago, and they were talking about a um, bear bells and like grizzlies um, and you know kind of what's the best method to disturb grizzlies and it's you know the park service always recommends you have a bear bell on you just to make noise and this guy did a study where he was basically sitting in a ground blind on a bear trail and he had tied a bear bell right down by the trail and had a string and he was basically jingling this bell as bears walked by to see how disturbed they were by this well these bears had never heard a bell in their life so they didn't they didn't think anything of it. Literally, they were walking right by it, and he's got footage of them walking by him, and he's just shaking this bell, and it's just rattling away. But then, you know, he, there's a video of a sow and two cubs, and he picks up a stick and snaps a stick, and he's about 50 yards away in a ground blind. And that sow turns and comes directly at him sitting in that ground blind because that 
that stick to her represented danger, whereas that bell ringing right next to her didn't represent danger. So it's kind of that association that really gets it. Right. And I think we'll probably come back to that association again when we talk about scent control in that other podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're when you're in there, are what's what's your best funnel that you like to hunt? Are you looking for like a saddle? Are you looking for a you know a fence, a gap in the fence? Are you looking for a gate? What are you looking for like funnel wise? What's your number one funnel to try and hunt? Yeah, so typically the places that I hunt, there's not really much for, you know, artificial man-made obstructions like fences or that type of thing. But for me, what the best funnels are, are the ones that deer literally can't go around because the terrain is, is too broken up. So say for example, in hill country, you have ravines and you have ridges. And in some of those ravines, they're quite steep, full of deadfall, and they might come up to like a rocky point. And right up on the top of that ravine, you might have a nice little uh, flattened piece of ground where you can tell exactly where those deer are choosing to cross basically from one ridge to the other. And you know that they're not going any lower because, you know, they literally can't because it's it's either rocky. I've found that deer don't like to necessarily walk across rocky areas or it's just too steep. You might have a cliff on one side. And those type of areas for me are the best because you know that the deer have to go through that particular location if they're going to go through there at all. Whereas the flat ground, I think it's a little bit more open-ended where you might have a particular tree line or something where you envision that a deer is going to use. And oftentimes they will, but they don't necessarily have to. Yeah. I mean, looking at funnels to me, there's funnels are probably my biggest thing that I like to hunt, you know, whether it's, you know, blow down trees, whether it's rock outcroppings, steep terrain, um, you know, low spots in a fence where a fence has been pulled down by a tree limb. Um, that same piece of 35 acres that I was talking about earlier, I actually went through in one spot um, and basically wired the top piece of bob wire to the bottom piece of bob wire and tightened it. So I pulled the fence down and raised the bottom of the fence up to create a fence crossing that I knew deer used, but to amplify them to use that specific area. Um, and that's where I killed most of my deer off that piece of property was within 40 yards of that fence crossing. What time of year did you do that fence alteration versus when were you actually hunting it and being being successful? So I did it the first year that I had access to that property, and that was probably mid-October. Um, and I killed deer off of it within a week. And, you know, I hunted that property for three years and consistently killed deer off of that once I had that fence set. I've heard of also people doing things like felling trees on purpose to try and create locations where deer will have to walk around chop one tree down in this direction, chop this other tree down in this other direction. Then you end up with a 10 yard gap that the deer have to walk through and a funnel that they would normally be using anyway. On private land hinge cutting. Um, that's a good one, you know, cause you're basically you're lowering that tree to, um, give them more browse, but at the same time you're helping funnel them, um, into that particular area. So yeah, that works really well. Yeah. Those are things that I'll look for too. If I'm in an area where the actual terrain funnel might be a hundred yards wide, a little bit too wide to cover the entire thing with a bow. I'll look for things like down trees where I know that a deer, if it's going to go around that tree, it's got to go right here. And that helps to, to really narrow down some of those larger areas and just actually smaller areas. Yeah. Uh, like logs to me, um, you talked about fallen trees, even like logs that have been down for a couple years and that are rotted. If you've ever noticed and look really carefully at those logs, 
Um, if you look down that length of the log, somewhere on there, there'll be a spot where it looks like it's kind of rotted out more and falling off. And an old, an old hunter pointed this out to me one time. 90% of the time, that's a spot where deer are crossing that log. And that spot that's kind of rotted out a little more is basically where their hoofs just lightly clip that log every time they step over it. So that log actually begins to fall apart in that specific area. So you'll see a spot, you know, if a log is 30 feet long, and again, this is a little tree that's been down, the bark has fell off of it. Um, there'll be a spot that may be two feet wide where it looks like, you know, a bear has like pulled the bark off of it or pulled that stump apart where it's rotten. A lot of times that's where a deer is crossing. And just by the numerous times of their hooves clipping that log, the log has started to fall apart on that area. And that's a deer crossing of that log. Yeah, it's a really good tip. We noticed that a lot too in Colorado in some of the places where we were looking for elk sign. It's just a little bit more amplified out there because a lot bigger, a lot bigger animal. Yeah. Yeah. So little things like that to me are, are things that can really stand out. I think a lot of people get hung up too much on buck sign, whether that's scrapes and rubs, um, especially just because it's, it's visual buck sign that they know a buck was there compared to a trail. Well, does could make that trail just as much as a buck could. Well, and the other thing too, with buck sign is that a lot of buck sign is left after dark especially if yeah. it's not full-blown right in the peak of the rut yet. So finding that nice rub line, if it's in an area that you wouldn't normally expect to see daytime movement, it's probably made at night. Yeah, for me, rubs and scrapes are just to merely tell me there's a buck in the area. I don't hunt off of them any way, shape, or form. I don't follow a rub line. I don't hunt on scrapes. It just tells me there's a buck in the area. Yeah, if I see a scrape, say, in an area where I would normally hunt in that location during the rut anyway, say it's a good funnel, it'll just make me a little bit more excited to know that it's actually being used already. Same thing if I'm hunting next to a bedding area, maybe it's late October, the rut hasn't quite kicked in yet, and I go to hunt on a, a place where I expect to see a particular individual deer bedding, and I see like a rub line or scrape line coming out of there, that'll make me excited knowing that he's actually, you know, using that bedding area right now, versus, yeah, if I see buck sign that's kind of out of way, from those areas where I would normally expect to see daytime movement. Yeah. It just, it just doesn't mean as much to me. Yeah. Even, even with deer sightings, um, you know, I want to know how and why that deer got to there. So if it's a rub line or a scrape line, okay, how and why did this deer, why did he choose here? How did he get to this point? And that helps me locate those funnels where that deer came through again, whether it's, you know, a saddle or, uh, you know, on a, a ridge or, you know, anything like that. It helps me determine where that deer came from or why he particularly chose to get to this area and how he got here. And so in the areas where you're most often hunting, would you say that these areas have as their major food sources throughout the year agriculture or is it mostly based on mast and browse? Mostly based on mast and browse. Okay. Um, those are, uh, you know, for the most part, those are the biggest ones. The neighbor may occasionally have, you know, a soybean field once in a while um, and small food plots here and there, but probably 98% of it's all based off of mast and browse. So you're probably not doing a lot of like in-season shining of fields or that type of thing. Most of your, if you're doing an observation set, for example, it's going to be actually in the woods. Yeah. Shining, you northerners, that's illegal in the south. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's called harassing wildlife in the south for the most part. They'll, uh, They'll throw the book at you for that one. But yeah, I mean, most of it, 
you know, really late season, I will do some, you know, because some of the seasons in the south go into February. Um, and a lot of times those deer, there's not much mass, there's not much browse left. So they do start coming back out into the field edges. And even then, you know, I'll do, you know, I'll hunt field edges in a tree that may be, you know, 200 yards from the wood line just to see where these deer are coming out from. And then I'll go back, look at the map, figure out where they're coming out to come out at that particular spot. You know, what ridge or what saddle are they coming down? And then I'll move in and hunt them in the woods, you know, 80 to 100 yards from the wood line. And so how far away do you actually have to drive to get to some of these places that you're hunting? Um, it varies. Um, you know, where I lived in Virginia, I could leave my house and be in a tree stand in less than 12 minutes. To a certain extent, it seems like, I know for me, if I find a place that is a lot further away from my house, like I have some places where it's a legitimate hour and a half drive to get to the parking lot, and then I have maybe another 45-minute walk to get to where I would want to set up. It's very hard for me to justify leaving early from work to go out and actually do like an observation set, for example, versus I feel like if I had a place that was a lot closer to home, I'd be a lot more likely to actually spend more time in the woods. Yeah, I mean, even when I was at college, I hunted a 7,000-acre national wildlife refuge. It was about, I don't know, probably 35 or 40 minutes from campus. Um, and even then, I did numerous observation sits in season um, just because it really helps you determine, okay, you've noticed that deer are starting to come out just to the west of this cedar tree. You can go back and look on the map, put that on the map, figure out, okay, how are they getting to that cedar tree from the woods? okay, you know, there's a really good saddle that comes through right here. So then you move in and you hunt that saddle. And you may look out in the field, you know, 150 yards behind you and see the deer, but never see the deer come by you. So then you go back and you start over. Okay, they didn't come through that saddle. Where else did they come through? Okay, so most of the stuff so far, it sounds like from what I gather, is woodsmanship basically on your end. Do you ever yeah. do you ever use other forms of in-season scouting such as trail cameras? I, I, I do, I guess. I mean, I run trail cameras pretty much all the time. Um, I don't really take, if I see a buck that shows up on the trail camera in that area, I want, I, I go back to trying to figure out why he's, why he did, how did he get to the spot and why is he coming through that spot? Um, you know, I don't rely on trail cameras to necessarily hunt a specific buck. Uh, I just try to figure out, you know, what deer in the area. And, you know, if I see a trail that might be hot or an area that that's second or third down on my list, I'll put a trail camera there and I might check it. If I see the deer activity up in that area, then I'll hunt there. A lot of times I never really hunt within probably 200, 250 yards of my trail camera. Um, my trail camera is just typically in an area that says, okay, if deer come off of this ridge, they're going to funnel through this spot. And then I try to get further up that ridge to where they're coming from um, to hunt them. Yeah, I'd say when I've used trail cameras too, I kind of do a similar strategy where I'm not actually putting the trail cameras at the location I want to hunt. It's at some place where I'll, I'll even expect that I won't get daylight pictures because it's too far away from where those deer are bedding. And then it doesn't, it's not as intrusive for me to go in and check those trail cameras either. I just want to know if a deer is using a particular area and if they are, then I can make the move to get, you know, closer into where I would actually hunt. I sp I've spoken to a lot of people like say at work or, or friends or whatnot that, you know, they've kind of hunted deer the same way that their family has for years and years and they might have a ladder stand set up with a salt block and a trail camera right there and they'll just go in and check the camera and saying well this is what i'm seeing on the you know the trail camera pictures and all the deer showing up at night i don't what am i supposed to do yeah exactly and, and one thing that was really pointed out to me one time was 
you know, I knew a guy that was hunting a specific buck, and again, he was doing just that, basically had a hang-on stand where his trail camera was, and he kept getting pictures of this buck on his trail cameras um, during daylight hours, so he kept sitting and hunting there thinking, okay, well, I'm going to see this buck because it's coming by this area. But what we ended up finding out was this buck would basically go on the ridge above where his trail camera was, and if that deer saw other deer down in that area, then he would come down off of the ridge. Um, if not, he would just keep going down the ridge, and he would never see him. He was probably 220 yards away or so. So that's why he'd never seen that buck all those times, was that deer would only come down off the ridge. So all photos that he had with him was with other deer. He was never by himself. Interesting. Sounds like he should have used a decoy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I found that the more my locations that I have kind of archived to grow for things that I've scouted, places that I've hunted, the less I end up using trail cameras because what eventually happens is I might have, you know, a cumulative of, you know, 35, 40,000 acres of potential places that I could go. I can't cover all that kind of ground with the trail cameras. So what usually ends up happening is if I choose to use trail cameras in a particular area, one particular piece of land, I can either have, you know, six or seven trail cameras throughout that land that I could spend a few hours, you know, make a trip like once a month or once every couple of weeks and go check those cameras and learn a lot about that particular area. And then I feel like I'm almost obligated to hunt that area because I have more intel on it that's real time versus the other strategy that I could potentially employ is I put a camera here, I put a camera there, I put a camera on a whole bunch of different pieces of property and what I think might be good locations to have those cameras. But then it ends up taking a lot more time to check those cameras. Um, it inevitably usually occurs that I'll have to either take time off of work or I'll, I'll risk uh, getting in to check those cameras after dark and potentially spooking deer out. And then I don't get the same kind of intel that I would if I, as if I had all those cameras in the same land. So it just becomes a logistical issue of trying to figure out where exactly to put those cameras. And so the more I, you know, kind of hunt, the less I kind of use the trail cameras in season and try to rely more on what I see when I have the stand on my back and what the wind's doing that day. Yeah, I think a lot of people rely way too much on two things, trail cameras and food plots. Um, to me, a lot of hunters, you, you ask them, okay, why did you set up in this spot? And they're going to be like, well, I got pictures of a buck in this area. Or, well, it's, you know, on the, on the inside edge of this off my food plot or whatever, versus compared to, okay, it's a travel corridor where deer are going to be funneled through here. And a lot of them in the rut will move towards those transition points because food plots aren't necessarily going to be as productive. Um, you know, and obviously the bucks are going to be on their feet more, so the photos really don't apply in that case um, because whether people believe in the October lull or not, uh, it's a different story. So, you know, I think they rely way too much on those things compared to their woodsmanships or, you know, just moving to different areas and trying different areas. Yeah, for sure. And the other thing for me is I kind of found that I like the surprise factor of not knowing what's in the area. <laughs> Versus some people want to know exactly, you know, every single buck that is in the general area and, you know, give names to all of them and whatnot. I don't have a problem with that necessarily. But at the same time, if I hear a buck coming in in the rut chasing a doe, I get excited not knowing if it's going to be a four corner, if it's going to be a giant 160. Yeah, this this hit list craze that's in the into industry now of everybody wanting to have a hit list and these bucks that they want to name and all this stuff. That's to me, I don't know. It's just crazy. But yeah, I'm like you, I would rather, I'd rather go out and just hunt an area and not say, okay, I know I'm going to, I'm going to find this deer in this area. 
you know, when a deer walks up and I hear footsteps, I don't know whether it's a fawn, I don't know whether it's a doe, I don't know whether it's a two-year-old buck or a four-year-old buck. So it's just, it's always interesting because it can happen multiple times in a night, especially if you hunt these transition areas. Right. And you might find a big set of tracks, you know, you stick your hand in and it's one of those tracks you can, you can fit a, a 30 out six shell across or, you know, just a big track and you don't know what that deer looks like, but in your mind, you're just, you're just curious. And when you hear that deer coming in, it's like, Oh, is that the big one? And you don't actually know versus, in the, you know, the other thing too, is if you have a picture of every deer in the area, none of them are huge, then that kind of throws, you know, it takes the fun out of it for a lot of people. And it can really discourage people from hunting a particular area or a particular farm. Well, there's not any big deer in that area. Well, just because you didn't get a picture of him doesn't mean he's not there. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's there's some deer that took me years and years to get pictures of, but I knew there was big deer in the area because I bumped them. You know, obviously got the deer up, seen it, was like, okay, I've never seen that deer before. And then it's like, okay, why haven't I got pictures of them? I mean, I've got 20 trail cameras across this area, but there's no pictures of them. Right, or maybe you get one picture of a big deer you get like a, a three shot burst. The first one is just the deer. The second picture, the deer's looking at the camera and then you don't get any more pictures of them ever. But yeah, you still might find that deer sign in that area. So he's not necessarily leaving the area. He's just avoiding that camera. Yeah. And some of that GPS um, study that was done out of Penn state really shows to deer core area compared to their home range. You know, you may see a deer within his home range, but you could easily be hundreds of yards off of his core area and may never see him for 30 days because he may not get anywhere outside of that core area. Mm-hmm. So to me, I, I kind of, you know, being the, having the biology background, I reflect back on a lot of that stuff, like studies like that, um, to say, okay, if a deer is bumped, he's not necessarily going to leave that area. He's going to tighten down to his core area and stay in that core area. So if I can get an idea of where his home range is, I can start to tighten in on his core area and figure out where he is. And a lot of that's done through in-season scouting and sightings and bumping that deer to know where he's at. Is there a particular place that you'll look? I know your background is in biology and forest service and whatnot, but is there a place where other hunters can try and get access to the same studies that you've read over the years? I know like when I was in college, I could search PubMed for articles that were based on science and engineering and whatnot and just get access to all these full text articles. Whereas I feel like most hunters will read about, you know, a synopsis of a study that was done in like a field and stream magazine, but they don't know where to actually look to find the full information. Yeah. And a lot of those synopsises are, are just butchered beyond belief that it's like, that is, did you even read the same study? (laughs) You know, they just, they really just find what they want to write about in there and then write a small segment about it. But yeah, a lot of these places now are, are posting them online. Like I think there's a the Penn State deer study that I was talking about. It's just it's free online. I think you can go to I don't even remember, but you can Google search uh, Penn State uh, telemetry GPS for deer, um, and it'll bring up the study. And basically, they go through like the life of their deer, and you can kind of see the movements of it during the time frame, and they kind of get more points during the the rut and gun season so you can see how that deer really tightened down his his core area during firearm season compared to whatever you want to call the october lull for that matter so some of these Um, studies were done on pressured land it wasn't just like a a big yeah private fenced in area yeah so some of these are done on on public land private land Um, some of the deer even get shot and the people panic because they shot a deer with a, a collar on it so they throw the collar off in the in the woods you know thinking nobody's going to find it or they don't want the deer to be found when in all reality that research or that data coming off that deer after it was harvested could have been beneficial to the study Hmm. interesting so yeah you can you can google search and there's you know 
Journal of Mammalogy, you got to have a subscription to, and most universities do. But there's a lot of this now is being published more in the open market where you can go and find stuff like this. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely have to do my research because that stuff's always been kind of interesting to me as well. Yeah, and just, you know, again, from my background, you hear like the October lull. It's not a lull because if you look at September's movements compared to October's movements, they're about the same. But it, yeah, if you compare that to November's, it, you know, it should be like the November 500 because those deer are up and moving a lot more than they do any other month of the year compared to the October lull. So the deer really keep the same amount of movements and we have the data to back that up, but hunters go more off, well, what I've seen compared to, you know, what the data shows. Yeah. And what I've seen is that there's definitely less movement for me in that October period, which most people would interpret as a lull. But for me, it's not necessarily that I believe there's a lull. It's just that I believe that there's such thing as hunter pressure and that those deer are not moving in the same places during daylight hours that they were back in September. Yeah, and if, and if you're not taking like data from when you go out hunting, number of deer and stuff that you see, um, you know, you're going to have a kind of an issue with, you know, what you see one year versus what you thought you saw that next year, you know, versus if you write it all down. Um, Virginia Department of Game and Inlands Fisheries has a really cool bow hunter survey that they send out. You can write down, you know, like what the weather was, the mass crop, the wind, all these other things. And it helps determine, you know, kind of abundance that hunters see. Well, you can use that same data for yourself to see when you see the most deer movement, the least deer movement from year to year on the same property. So I kept that data for years. Um, and just would look at it each year to say, okay, you know, this date last year, I seen four deer and I'd have what stand that was rode on um, and things like that. So that really helps you reflect back while not necessarily in season scouting, but when you're in season now, if you're not writing that data down, um, you're really missing out on some, on some key intel. One other point that I did want to make on the trail camera thing was that now we obviously have the technology for cell-based cameras where you send a a picture to your phone and I actually have had one of those cameras that I got to test once and I'll admit it was fun looking at the pictures I'd be just, I would just be you know sitting at work and I get a buzz on my phone and I could look down and see that there was a doe walking through at 10 30 a.m or whatever it was and it's it's one of those things that's interesting from the standpoint of getting intel for the people that don't necessarily want to get their scent in the woods when they're not actually going to be hunting it or for the people that live several hours away from their hunting locations. But I ended up trading that, that thing away. Um, it just, yeah. it was, it's expensive. I think that for the most part, you can get a lot of the same Intel and even better Intel just by using your woodsmanship with boots on the ground. But obviously that's going to be a little bit of a, a personal decision for everybody. I have a, I have a dire hatred for those things, um, based off of a, a, a background of mine of getting pictures hundreds of pictures a night and happen to look at them all. Uh, but that's a different story for a different day. But <laughs> to me, those, those have a really good use for people who may live in say PA and go to have a lease in Kansas or something like that, that long distance area um, to cover where they can't go out there and check the trail cameras every year or every month or anything like that. They need that info relayed to them, you know, from a distance. I can see the benefit of those in that situation. Can you also see how they could maybe be construed the other way where people are using them to make game time decisions when they're actually out already in the woods. Oh yeah. That's, <laughs> it's an interesting, it's an interesting debate. Um, you know, I see a downfall of them with 
this is kind of off topic um using cellular cameras like on bear baits out here in the west where you may be able to see three or four bear baits from one ridge mm. firearm hunting and you have you know a camera basically sends you a picture you say okay there's a bear on that bait and then you can you know whether you move 100 yards to be able to see that bait take a five six or seven hundred yard shot to that bear um so I, there's kind of a yeah that's i think idaho idaho is working on a ban of some type or something like that based off that premises so there's there's upsides to them and there's downsides to them, um, and that's obviously one of them. I mean, a lot of people now are so in tune to their phone, they can just play on their phone and not ever have to look up in their food plot until they get a picture of a deer. And they're like, oh, I look up and see the same deer that's you know on their phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely use my phone a lot when I'm in the tree. I'll admit, but it's usually you know on like Onyx Maps or Google Maps or something trying to find the place I'm gonna hunt next time if the hunt that I'm on at that current time doesn't work out. Yeah, I mean, there's phones are a detriment to hunters. Uh, pay more attention to the woods than your phone. That's why I try not to have a smartphone. I don't want to have to be distracted. I want to enjoy <laughs> the woods. Yeah. You see so many posts on forums about people in the woods. It's like, quit looking at your phone and pay attention to what's going on around you. But that's me. All right, off from that rant. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, uh, you know, those are pretty much our our in-season scouting i'm sure at a later time we'll do you know come postseason we'll talk more about postseason scouting i think up next we're going to get into the the scent debate and kind of our our mindsets on scent and what's better hunting the wind ozone or you know scent lock things of that nature so we're going to kind of dive into that on the next one yeah we'll, we'll probably try and get a guest on at some point too somebody who's very well well versed in the science of scent but doesn't necessarily have any ties to the industry and is able to kind of speak freely on, you know, kind of the more technical end of, of scent and how these products may or may not work. Yeah, and the science of it. Uh, again, that's what it comes down to me. Hunters believe a lot of things. Um, science is kind of hard to argue with, in my opinion, right? But I'm a scientist, so. And with that, we want to thank you for joining into the podcast. We'll continue to release episodes every other Thursday. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can message us through the contact page at diy-sportsman.com or on the DIY Sportsman Facebook page. In addition, you can find more of our content on YouTube. Just search DIY Sportsman and Boudreaux Boswell. That's spelled B-O-U-D-R-E-A-U-X. And you can follow our Instagram feeds at DIY underscore Sportsman and at Boudreaux underscore Boswell.